Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful being with you. This is my first time being at Southeastern Baptist here in the flesh, uh, but my initiative, the Oikon EMEA Network that uh, Jamie mentioned, has been working with Southeastern as well as a number of other evangelical theological schools for several years now. So I feel like I know Southeastern, but this is my first time having the privilege being with you in the flesh, so I'm really grateful to be here. And I hope that you appreciate the wonderful leaders and uh, educators that uh, you have the ability to be here with and that you're uh, appreciative of the opportunity to learn from them because it is really an amazing privilege. I've been very impressed with them. Well, yesterday, as I uh, came to the airport in Chicago uh, to fly down here, I was parking my car in the airport parking lot, and I looked over at the car next to mine, and it had a bumper sticker. And here's what the bumper sticker said. God's original plan was to hang out in a garden with a couple of naked vegetarians. Now, I promise you, I did not drive around the parking lot for hours looking for the just the right bumper sticker to share with you this morning that would set up my message. No, this was uh, provided without my involvement by the Lord. Well, I'm going to leave it to uh, superior speakers who can handle the complexities better uh, to talk to you about the intricate issues involved in vegetarianism and nudity. What I would like to speak to you about this morning is the words hang out, right? God's original plan was to hang out in a garden with his people. And I want to ask, was that the plan? Is that right? Is that the purpose of life? Is it the purpose of our lives to hang out with God? I'm not primarily interested in the fact that they're being cute. You know, this bumper sticker's being a little cutesy about something that is very profound and important. Because let's face it, if we pay attention in the Bible, I think we see that God himself can be lighthearted at times. I'm not offended by that. But I think there's a deeper problem here. Is there nothing more to life than to get connected with God and then just hang out, right? Do nothing with God. Is that our purpose? Is that the reason God created us, to do nothing together with God? I think that we can sometimes get that idea, and I think we can sometimes pass on that idea. So, for example, uh, many times the way we will frame the gospel for people is this. We'll say, you're a sinner, but Jesus died for you, so if you believe in him, you get to go to heaven when you die. I've heard this from a couple of people who've sort of summarized this as the way that we share the gospel with people. Now, all of that is true, and it's vitally important, but if that's the only thing we say and we don't have any other message, then once people decide to follow Jesus, what's the next step in the plan? 
right? Follow Jesus and you get to go to heaven when you die. So I make a decision to follow Jesus and what's my next step? Die. That can be, well, first of all, that could be an off-putting message, but even aside from that, does God not care about what we do with our lives? Does the gospel have nothing to say about the way we live our lives today? I think that because this is our primary framework for thinking about the gospel, we end up trying to fill in the time between a decision to follow Christ and going to be with him. We try to fill that for people with church-focused activities, right? Show up on Sunday morning to worship. Show up on Wednesday night for Bible study. Evangelize your neighbors, right? And this, and this, and this. You know, show up at this activity to help care for the poor. Now, all these things are good. Again, they're vital. They're important. This is the beating heart, right, at the center. But if your body has a beating heart and no other organs, you're going to be in some trouble. The fact is that these church-focused activities are never going to take up more than about 5% of the total waking hours in the average person's life. If you are not in a church job, you know, if you're not an employee of a church or a parachurch organization, church-focused activities, if you are a model congregant, right, if you're a pastor, somebody who gives you 5% of their week consistently, that's a super congregant. Right? Those are the people we pray for. But it's never going to be more than 5% of their waking hours in a given week. Mark Green, who runs something called the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, has pointed out the consequence of this. He says, if this is the way we address people with church-focused activities, the result is that the 98% of Christians who are not employed by churches and parachurch organizations will not be envisioned or equipped to serve Christ with 95% of their lives. Think about this. If the model of the Christian life we have consists of church-focused activities, then 98% of Christians who are not employed by churches, 98% of Christians are not envisioned or equipped to follow Jesus with 95% of their lives. And as Mark puts it, what a tragic waste, right? This, the results of this, I'm convinced, the results of this is what you see all around you. When we lament the state of the church, when we lament the state of the culture, we see Christians or people who call themselves Christians treating their faith as if it were a leisure time activity, right? My faith in Jesus Christ is a leisure time activity. It's something that I squeeze into my life in between other activities when I can show up at church, when I can show up at Bible study. And another result is a thoroughly secularized culture. If you want to know how is it that a culture gets secularized, this is one of the main ways it happens. Because Christians have a tendency now to disconnect their faith from the activities that connect them to their neighbors and connect them to the structures of their culture. 
If we privatize our faith and we keep it as a leisure time activity that we participate in as part of our private life, it's not connected to the structures of public life. It's not connected to the culture. This is how the public square becomes secularized. And I'm convinced that this is one of the most important challenges both for the church and for the culture in our time. What's the path out of this, out of this situation? I'm convinced that one of the major keys that we need to get out of this situation is to connect the faith, to connect the gospel to work. As strange as that may sound at first. See that bumper sticker about God hanging out in the garden with a couple of naked vegetarians. I want to suggest that's really about work. And a lot of what we see around us that doesn't appear to be about work really is about work. Attitudes and understandings of work as an activity are pervasive. The only thing that is as pervasive in our mentality and our way of life as attitudes about work is attitudes about sex. Right? And the book of Genesis, I think, suggests this. What are the two things that God gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis? Right? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Sex and work are the fundamental structures of human culture. Attitudes about work are pervasive in their influence and our mentality. Most people, almost every almost all people, spend most of their lives working. Work is not just in jobs. If you've ever had children, you know this. Work takes place in homes. Work takes place in neighborhoods. Work takes place in schools, right? Work is most of life when you add up the hours. That bumper sticker, God just wants to hang out in a garden. This bumper sticker is responding to the pain and the frustration and the toil and the injustice that people encounter in the world of work. And it's also responding to idolatrous attitudes about work, people who idolize work, people who make themselves slaves to their jobs, people who pour all their sense of identity and meaning and purpose in their life into their work. People respond against that and say, well, work is bad. I want to get away from it. The good life, the life of peace, the life of rest, the life of happiness is to be found in my leisure. And my dream is to live a life where leisure is all I have to do. Because the world of work is so broken. Now, there's no denying that the world of work is badly broken. We know this, and we know why it is, because Genesis 3 makes this very clear. When Adam and Eve disconnect themselves from God, God addresses himself to them, and one of the things he says is, I'm going to tell you the consequences of your actions. Your work will be full of toil and frustration because you have disconnected yourself from me. So the world of work is badly broken. And idolatry of work is wrong. It's as wrong as any other kind of idolatry. And the technocratic elite who increasingly run our society and who have more and more of the power in our society, this technocratic elite does have a workaholism problem that the church has to confront. 
But the gospel does not point us away from work. The gospel actually points us to a new understanding of work, a deeper reality. There is a reason why work takes up most of life. It's because we're made for it. We are made for work, for good work. In Genesis 2.15, it tells us why God put Adam in the garden. It wasn't just to hang out. It says God put Adam in the garden to work it and protect it, to cultivate it and protect it. We are here to love God and to love each other primarily by doing good work. Other things are involved, but in Genesis and in other places, the purpose of creation is identified primarily in terms of work. We're made to accomplish good things, to get good things done, roll up our sleeves and do something for God, do something for our neighbors, to do work that provides food, provides clothing and shelter, provides transportation, communication, medicine, safety, beauty, the things people need and rightly want. That's what we're made for, to do the work that provides things that are good for people. All this stuff that we, that we depend on every day, the food, the clothing, the cars, the homes, the phones, the computers, the classrooms, where does it all come from? It comes from people working to provide it to each other. This is why work takes up most of life. We're made for work. Yes, rest matters too. The psalm says God gives to his beloved sleep. Worship, corporate worship, public worship, family worship, private worship, the prayer closet, evangelism, Bible study, these things all matter too. But in our day, there's already a lot of preaching about that stuff. There are a lot of pulpits that are telling people they need this. But does the pulpit have something to say about what people spend most of their lives doing? The overwhelming majority of their time. Does the pulpit have anything to say about what people spend most of their lives on? This is why there's now a faith and work movement that's exploding in the church. Because more and more pastors are having the experience that my friend Tom Nelson had. Tom uh, pastors a church in Kansas City. And he became convicted that a failure to connect Sunday to Monday was, as he calls it, pastoral malpractice. About 15 years ago, he preached a sermon to his congregation in which he apologized to, to them and announced his repentance from pastoral malpractice of failing to connect Sunday to Monday. We have a tendency to think of work as a small, as an isolated thing. I have my job to do. This is part of why we don't see the deep significance of it. We have to start thinking of work in cosmic terms, in terms of everybody's work. What is it accomplishing? The early church father, Irenaeus, said that creation was not made to be static and unchanging. Creation was not made to simply stay the way it was. He said that's Platonist thinking. 
That's the Greco-Roman pagan philosophers bringing in their idea of eternity as unchanging. He said creation was made to be dynamic. It was a project given to humanity, something to be unfolded, developed, improved upon. God gave us this wild, untamed world, and he said, go transform it with your work. Turn it into something beautiful that glorifies the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make it glorify the love of God more and more and more and more and more and more, world without end. An infinite, never-ending project of taking the wild and untamed cosmos that was given to Adam and Eve and they and their descendants transforming it more and more for eternity to glorify God. In Genesis 2, it says that the world outside the garden was an empty wilderness. And one of the reasons it, said it, was an, it says that it's an empty wilderness is it says there was no man to work the ground, right? Outside of this garden... Human work has not yet taken control of creation to make it glorify God. God has given it to Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 1, he says, fill the world and subdue it. What does this mean? God has given Adam and Eve a garden that's beautiful and cultivated and fruitful. And he says, okay, you see this? Go out there in this huge cosmos I've given you and make all of that look like this. What an amazing project. What an amazing mission. And the 16th century reformers, the Protestant reformers, across all their divisions of soteriology and ecclesiology, across all the different branches of the big Protestant family, the 16th century reformers agreed with this view. Part of the Reformation was not only a recovery of the doctrine of justification that we find in Scripture, but also a recovery of this Irenaean understanding of creation and the purpose of human life. And this is an aspect of the Reformation that I think we uh, could do well to look closer at. But we don't have time for that this morning. God did not just create those naked vegetarians to hang out with him. He created those naked vegetarians to share in this grand creative project to work with him as his stewards or vice regents, ruling the world under God's rule as his stewards, having stewardship over the whole creation through their work. They carried out, they were to carry out this unspeakably beautiful plan to create an unspeakably beautiful world. And what we find in the book of Revelation is that this project is restored in Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, the eternal destiny of human beings is described as a redeemed people doing good work, engaging in all kinds of creative activities that serve one another's needs and take good care of God's world. And it says they will rule forever as God's vice regents or stewards in the world. We will be God's workers forever. This is what Christ restores us to, loving God and loving each other by doing good work. You see, Jesus did not come only to save individuals. 
We began our time together this morning with a reading from one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible from the book of Colossians. And one of the things that's mentioned in that passage is that in the cross, by the blood of the cross, Christ is reconciling everything in heaven and earth to God, not just isolated individuals who follow Christ. It's a restoration of the whole cosmic project. And we see in the book of Revelation what a beautiful and glorious thing it is. We get a glimpse of what a beautiful and glorious thing it is when all things in heaven and on earth are reconciled to their creator through a redeemed people and their stewardship of the world. And then when you see it in Genesis and you see it in Revelation, you begin to ask, well, is this anywhere else? And you begin to discover this is a theme throughout the Bible. There's no part of the Bible that doesn't connect to this. It's in the Old Testament law. It's in the prophets. It's in the parables. It's in the epistles. Now, the full restoration of the cosmos and the cosmic plan does not happen until Jesus comes back. And that's very important to remember. It's important to remember that we today in the present age are not going to redeem the whole cosmos, right? Jesus has told us he's coming back to carry that plan into fruition. That's important, first of all, because it keeps us humble. We have a tendency to go off on our own power and get into a lot of trouble. So it's important to keep ourselves humble. It's also important that, so that we can remain grace-based in our relationships with our non-Christian neighbors. Right? If we're going to stay grace-based and not pharisaical in the way that we speak and act to non-Christians, part of that is remembering the full kingdom does not come until Jesus comes back. That's what keeps us grace-based in the present age. We do have to remember that. But we can't just push all of this into the future and say this has nothing to do with the way we live today. Because if anything's clear in the Bible, it's clear that if the power of Christ is not transforming you now, you're not yet in Christ. Nobody gets into Christ and is unaffected by that and goes on living the same way they always did. That, that, that doesn't happen. And that, unfortunately, we unintentionally allow space for that when we reduce the gospel to make a decision to follow Jesus and then wait to die, right? The power of Christ transforms the way we live today. We become disciples. Remember, the Great Commission does not say make converts of all nations. We become disciples of Christ. We start to live the way that God has made us to live. The Great Commission also says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Consider Proverbs 31. When I first started talking to people about this through the lens of Proverbs 31, it was because I had a vague memory that there was something about this stuff in Proverbs 31, the picture of the godly woman. Right? I had this vague memory, so I went back and looked, and it's the dominant theme. Now, it may not look that way if you read Proverbs 31 without having this whole Bible picture in front of you, but I think once we have this whole Bible picture, when we look at Proverbs 31, we see, oh, this is really important. Work and also 
our economic exchange with each other that puts us into relationship with each other through our work. You see, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 does worship God and care for the poor and do many other important things. But these are aspects of a life that is primarily taken up with work and business. To worship God, to make space for worshiping God, to make space for caring for the poor, to make space for other spiritual disciplines is an aspect of a life whose dominant theme is to roll up your sleeves and do good work. She's up early every morning. She works hard. She's highly productive. She's fruitful. Start looking in your Bible for the word fruitful or fruit. Start looking for how common that is. And what does it mean to be fruitful? You'll find some interesting things. And not only is she a hard worker, she runs a small business. You know, it's amazing how much there is in the Bible not only about work, but about economic activity and exchange. It's here over and over in Proverbs 31. She buys a field. She, her merchandise is profitable. If you read the passage, count the number of references to buying and selling. It's all over the Mosaic Law, which is deeply concerned with right conduct in buying and selling and the management of property. It's all over the prophets. David Baker did a study of the minor prophets in which he counted the references to injustice. And he found that economic injustice is far more frequently denounced than all other types of injustice put together in the Minor Prophets. This is not a trivial concern for the prophets. Even in the Song of Songs, you know, my friend Will Messenger, he led a project to develop a Bible commentary on work in every book of the Bible. And he likes to say, when we started this project, I thought there's one book we'll never find anything in. That's the Song of Songs, right? because it's not about work. It's about that other thing. But then they actually looked. It's amazing what you find in the Bible when you put aside your preconceptions and look at what's actually in it. The man and the woman in the Song of Songs are launching a small business together. It's a vineyard. And a lot of their love poetry, they speak to each other as they plant the vineyard together. That's a small business. They're creating a small business together. The home life and the work life seamlessly integrated, not put in separate containers and then an attempt to balance them the way we do today. So this is in every part of the Bible. Jesus' parables, the parables involving stewards, parables involving workers, parables involving the management of money, the ownership of land, workers, employers, Jesus constantly draws on images of work and business in the parables. That doesn't mean the parables are only about work. It doesn't mean these are parables about how to manage your bank account and nothing more. But they're also about nothing less. I actually had a a theological educator, not from Southeastern Baptist Seminary, say to me once, the parable of the talents has nothing to do with money. Because his mentality was that it's about making, you know, multiplying disciples for the kingdom of God. And I didn't, you know, it was a context where I couldn't 
quickly respond, but if I could respond, I would say, well, do you think that doesn't involve how we manage our money? You think there's no implications here? It's not only about that, but it's not about less. Jesus is assuming in the parables that the world of work and business is a place of primary spiritual concern to God, and he's also assuming that his audience already knows that so that he can use that realm to draw images of spiritual concern that he can then make of broader application, right? How you treat your workers, how you treat your money is a matter of primary spiritual concern. Jesus assumes this and so does his audience and that's why he can use that imagery. But I was talking about Proverbs 31 and I'll come back to that. We see a huge concern not only to be good workers, but for business. She's wise about buying and selling. She participates in business ethically, but she's also concerned to keep the business going. Her merchandise is profitable. As hard as those, is to, as those are to keep together in practice, to be ethical in your business dealings and also make a profit. The Bible recognizes that tension. The Bible recognizes that it's very hard to keep a business going and keep that, uh, keep that profit so that you can keep the business going, but also be ethical. And yet, although the Bible recognizes that tension, the emphasis on the, in the Bible is not on ethics versus profit. The emphasis in the Bible, as we see in Proverbs 31 and in many other places, is on making a profit ethically. Right. Doing good and fruitful work that is ethical and makes a profit because it's ethical. You see, humanity is made to work together. This mission of stewardship over the world that cultivates the world and makes it better and better and better and better and better. We're made to be in relationship with each other and do this together. And God cares not only about each person's individual work, but about how we connect our work to each other. And that's where economic exchange and economic systems come in. They connect our work to each other. I make shirts, and you make shoes, right? And I take my shirts, and I sell them to you, and I use the money to buy your shoes. Now multiply that by billions of people. Economic exchange is simply a way of serving each other with our gifts, or at least that's what it's supposed to be. If it's not that, then sin has entered the picture, as we know it always does in the present age. We're supposed to create value for each other. I make good shirts that actually, you know, stay on and keep you warm, and you make good shoes that don't fall apart. We're supposed to create value for each other and serve each other. That's why it's wrong when people try to make money without delivering any value to the customer. Because business is supposed to be about creating value and delivering value to people, not about money. God wants ethical businesses where people are exchanging their gifts with each other in love. Gene Edward Veith said that God's intention for the economy is this. I serve you with my talents and you serve me with your talents. The result is a divine division of labor, a social order whose substance and energy is love. How does that compare with the way people think and act in our world today. 
The whole picture in Proverbs 31 culminates with this. It says, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Give her the fruit of her hands. Our work is to be fruitful. It's to provide for the needs, first of all, of our own households, right? Give her the fruit of her hands. She's supporting her household. That's emphasized in Proverbs 31. It talks about how her husband and her children don't have any lack. Supporting our own households through our work is a huge biblical concern. But also notice in this, in this line, give her the fruit of her hands. The household is to have stewardship over itself. The household is God's primary unit of stewardship. Here again, we see family and work seamlessly integrated. The household is God's primary place where human beings exercise stewardship over God's world. Give her the work of her hands. Allow that household to manage itself and have stewardship over itself. Kings are not supposed to come in and just grab people's stuff and take it away from them, right? We see the prophets constantly denouncing kings because they think that because they're the king, they can come in and take whatever they want. But that takes away people's control over their own lives. All people, not just kings, not just technocratic elites, all people are made as God's stewards of the world. All people are fellow stewards. All people are our partners in this great project of cultivating the world. The household is a place of stewardship, and we are to respect the stewardship of our neighbors, not take away their stuff or reduce them to dependence on us. Households are to be economically independent and we should do what we can to assist them to become economically independent so that they will not be spiritually dependent. And then there's that final line of Proverbs 31, let her works praise her in the gates. I keep coming back to these words. They keep echoing for me. Let her works praise her in the gates. Our work is not only to provide for the needs of our own households. Our work is to do good things that help communities flourish. Our work is to serve the common good. We are to do good things that not only benefit us, but benefit all those whom we serve. And those who do, those who do good productive work that serves the needs of the community and helps the community flourish, they will be recognized, or they ought to be recognized, and they usually will be recognized. They'll be recognized as people the community depends on. Their work will praise them in the gates. The gates, of course, is the public space, the place where people come together, the center of community life, the public square. What would happen if Christians lived this way? What would happen if churches discipled people to do fruitful work, connecting Sunday to Monday, equipping people 
to go out into the world six days of the week and love and serve their neighbors. What would happen if our work praised us in the gates? If Christians lived that way habitually because churches made a decision to prioritize that discipling, how would that position the gospel in our culture if our works praised us in the gates? If we could show those workaholics who are being made miserable by their workaholism and the people who are working for the weekend who are miserable because they spend most of their lives disconnected from what they're doing and wishing they were somewhere else. What if we could show the workaholics and the disconnected people working for the weekend that there's another way? That you can have a life loving God and loving your neighbor by doing good work. And if they were to ask us, how do I get that? What makes that possible? What's our answer to that question? I think you know it. Brothers and sisters, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you, we honor you, we love you, we rejoice in you, we're awed by you. We are so grateful to you that you created each and every human being in your beautiful image to show the world what you are like, to carry on that beautiful work of taking good care of your world and loving each other as a way of worshiping and glorifying you. Father, we lament that we have cut ourselves off from you. We lament our own brokenness and we lament the brokenness of our world. We thank and praise you that you have restored us to yourself by the power of the cross. We thank you that you sent your son. We can never be done thanking you that you sent your son to reconcile us and in us all things to you, to the only ultimate destiny worth having. We thank you and praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.